<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hey, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment, and welcome to part two of an especially rocking episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram. You can also email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at Totally80s.com. So if you tuned in to our last episode, you know it was nothing but a good time. So as the song says, how can I resist bringing back Ricky Rocket from Poison and Tracy Guns from LA Guns to continue our conversation all about the Sunset Strip in the 80s. Last time we got, uh, of course, we had to talk about the world famous, or should I say world infamous, Rainbow Bar and Grill and the flyer wars that took place in the parking lot there, epic stories. But the other absolute institution that still is on the Sunset Strip to this day is, of course, the Whiskey, the Whiskey of Go-Go, which um, that's historic dating well, well before the 1980s, back to the 60s when the Doors and Arthur Lee and Love would play there. And I mentioned the Zeros who are on that LA Gunsfire. It was painted purple for a while for the band. It was. The Zeros. Yeah. And I do at some point want to talk about some of the bands from the strip that, you know, didn't break out as big that maybe, you know, you'd like to give out a shout out. The Whiskey, we still play there every New Year's. Really? Yeah, we're the Whiskeys. Yeah, nine years in a row. Nice. But yeah, I mean, for us, we just don't play anywhere else in LA. I mean, you know, we could play bigger places but it's like that's where we do our thing is the whiskey that's cool i think we play like three or four nights a year what does the whiskey mean to you because i remember in the 80s on mondays there used to be something called the no bozo jam which it was either free or it was like stupidly cheap to get in like a dollar to get it was like one of those things where it's like a buck to get in buck dollar beers or really cheap beers 15 bands play it's just like you it was all nighter and you know i saw like electric love hogs or pygmy love service i can't remember one of the two but you know it, it was the whiskey was another epicenter as you put it what does the whiskey mean to you guys for me i always preferred seeing shows there i mean for for a long time it was the troubadour but the whiskey was remodeled and 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 reopened during our time starting out. So when they did, it's like, you know, Motley Crue would do four shows a weekend there. You know what I mean? They do a matinee night. And then, but if you want off nights, I saw Randy Hansen there. I've seen so many great gigs there and it's a comfortable place to see loud rock. It really is. And I don't know, just feel like, I feel like that's my place. Whiskey. Was it a rite of passage for either of you to play the first time there? Like, I, I assume, Ricky, that Poison played there, and it must have been a big deal no, for you. You never we did. Never, we never played the whiskey. There's a reason for that. It was closed when 
the couple of years that we were on the circuit, it was closed. They lost their liquor license. Right. The other place we did not play was Gazaris, because if you played the Troubadour, you couldn't play Gazaris. If you played Gazaris, you couldn't play the Troubadour. So there was that whole mafia, you know, music mafia thing going on. So now I, I a couple of times I went up and jammed, you know, with somebody or something like that. Now, I've since played the whiskey. Devil City Angels played the whiskey. Yeah, we did. Um, yeah. So, you know, by the way, Tracy is like the most fun person to record shit with. Like I had a blast. Oh, we're like fucking with mics and just, I mean, just no, 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 let's try it this way. I mean, we really had a good time making that record, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We got to do another one. Yeah. I'm having a blast just doing a podcast with you guys, just talking with you. I mean, it's, it's a good, it's, we're not even awake yet. We're, we're even more fun when we're awake. I'm having a well, let's keep drinking the coffee. And speaking of which, we've talked about, you know, actual clubs and bars that were institutions of the strip. But I one thing that I really loved about the strip was back then, like anything that was on the Sunset Strip was called the rock and roll link. So there was the rock and roll Denny's, which was the Denny's on the strip, which often we'd all hang out at after after going to one of these shows. Yeah, but see, we called it the murder Denny's. Why why'd you call it that? Well, because people got murdered there. Like literally? Wait, what? Yeah, that's why they closed down. It just was, turned out, you know, pimps and drug deals took over rock and roll days. I had no idea that I was risking my life when I would go over there to have some moons over my hammy at like 2 a.m. That's <laughs> unfortunate. I mean, obviously there were other late night diners. There was, of course, Ben Franks and there was. Cantor's, of course. Cantor's was a big place. But the Denny's uh, that I didn't know was a murder Denny's. That was a place. But then there was also on the Ralph's, which is still there. And I don't Rock think and roll Ralph's. it was called Rock and Roll Ralph's. And it's still there. I don't think anyone's gone murdered there as far as I know. But the Rock and Roll Ralph's on Sunset, I thought was so appropriately called the Rock and Roll Ralph's. Because I don't know if you've ever noticed, but usually when you go to regular, you know, Ralph's is a grocery store. When you go to supermarkets, and you want to get beer, you usually have to go kind of deep into the store to get it, you know, right, to right. Like the refrigerated, you know, alcohol section. And from what I recall, at least in the 80s, the rock and roll wraps, the beer was like right the by front, the front door, yeah. <laughs> like the Bam. way a 7-Eleven would be. Like you could just walk in there and within 30 seconds have your beer. I imagine you went to the rock and roll wraps to stock up for your parties that you did for with poison when you were you know making people leave before the headliner you probably watched the rock and roll route <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> I'm, I'm sure yeah <laughs> you know uh, at the rock and roll ralph's one time i remember when i first made a little bit of money i had you know and i was just yeah man i have some money from a gig i'm feeling really good right and i was uh sitting and this guy is behind me talking about did not know i was sitting in the other uh stall i almost said in the other booth and he's talking shit about me just saying i sucks and blah 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 blah. and i remember going up and going home walked up to the waitress and i said whoever this guy is it's on me and tell him ricky rocket just bought his late night breakfast Oh my oh, god! I have no idea where that guy is now, but I went. I wish I could be that classy always, because honestly, right? I am not. <laughs> <laughs> that was a classy move. That was a classy move. Well, I did. You know, obviously, as I've mentioned, you know, LA Guns and Poison were two of the biggest bands to come out of this era of Hollywood. But there were a lot of bands that you know, us being on the ground at the time, either saw or, in your cases, maybe played with. 
that didn't get as big as they probably should have. I have a few that I want to mention that I'm very curious about which ones you might want to cite. They could be bands that like either never got signed or maybe did get signed, but their records didn't break. Okay, so I've mentioned the Zeros, the purple-haired Zeros, who were signed to Restless Records, which was Bill Hines' label after Enigma. They were massive in L.A., and it just didn't take off for them here. We've mentioned Gilby Clark, so I don't even know if this counts because it's a little earlier, but I just want to say before he was in, obviously he was in in Guns N' Roses, but Kill for Thrills and Handy. I loved Candy, Whatever Happened to Fun. That was such a great record. And that was a power pop, full on like power pop, like Raspberries record. That was actually, I don't even know. They probably paid Madame Wong's and clubs like that. They did. Well, Gil- Gilby was the sound man at Madame Wong's West. I had no idea. Wow. Another good connection to have. You know, you get someone in your band there and you get a guy who has parents own a printer and you're in business. So I wanted to definitely mention them. Another band, I have a flyer for them. Just to clarify, I have nothing against the super group with Tommy Shaw and Ted Nugent and Jack from uh, Night Ranger in it, but there was another band called Damn Yankees. Yes, there was. And I loved them. They were my favorite local band. I'm holding a flower now for people who aren't watching the video. Damn Yankees. I have their demo tape. My guitar teacher in high school was in them. And I'm not good at guitar. So, you know, Tracy, I'm no competition for you at all. I suck at it. But And Electric Angels. Let's mention them since we're talking about them. But I loved this band so much. But there is a blog that puts up a lot of demo tapes and unreleased stuff by kind of these lesser sung or never got signed kind of bands. And on this blog, they posted the entire demo tape, like a four song, like development deal tape that Damn Yankees did. Um, And it was the demo tape I owned back then from my my guitar teacher. And I downloaded the whole thing. It had Caroline, uh, Bigger Than Life, Racing with the Moon. And uh, I was just, this is a band I just want to take a moment. There were a lot of bands who didn't get the break or whatever, and they were one of them. But what are bands, you know, like I said, you were in the scene playing with bands, friends with other bands. There there are a lot of cool bands, you know, just, you know, just go down the line from, you know, Jet Boy, which is really from San Francisco area. Yep. Junkyard, Rock City Angels, which came from Florida. Yes, and there wasn't Johnny Depp in Rock City Angels. In the beginning, yeah. Okay. I have their album. I have their album. He wrote one song on it. Yeah, there was a lot of really cool stuff. And there was also some really eclectic things. I can't really remember now because they didn't make it. But there, but no, I mean, at the time, there was everything from new wave to, you know, funk rock, metal, glam rock, death rock. It was awesome. I'm glad you mentioned Jet Boy because uh, Sammy Yoffer from Henry Rocks later was in their lineup. I don't think he was originally in their lineup. And there was someone else in Rock City Angels. Like I said, I own their record. Johnny Depp was in him for a minute. He wrote one song on that album. It was called Oh Mary. And uh, they sort of had a little moment where, and they were signed. And there was someone else in that band that was, went on to be in another band. I can look it up, but. I don't know, but but they were the first band. Deppin wanted to release a double record. Isn't that the story? Really? I think the I think that that record is a double record. So Jet Boy, basically, they were the biggest band of their era in San Francisco, and at one point we were the biggest band down here. So we would swap gigs. We'd open for them up there, and they'd open for us down here. 
And I stayed friends with Billy for a long time. And then, you know, he, he got the Buck Cherry gig now for a while. He's had it. He's done really well with that. And it's so nice to see him out working and having a great time. Yeah, there were some uh, interesting bands. I mean, like the Brooklyn Brats. And, yeah, Brooklyn Brats. Uh, yeah, you know, they were great. Ruby Slippers. Uh, well, what you were? Oh God! Remember that? What was that band that the guy hung upside down, like would sing upside down, and he was like super athletic, dude. Doug Doug Starr. Yeah, Doug Starr. Yeah. But what was his band called? Yeah, yeah. That that was a thing. And that, now we're going down that road, but I just had one. Obviously, Hans Nadi, uh, Great White. Well, no, that was earlier. Swift Kick. <laughs> Swift Kick. Yes. Witch. When we first moved here, it was all about Witch when I moved Witch here. Witch is awesome. And then Keel. I mean, Ronnie Keel, you know, huge at the time. That's right. Steeler. Stealer, yeah. I mean, I, like every girl I'd walk up to, they're like, "Nope, I'm dating somebody in Witch," and I'm like, "I want to be that. I want to be that guy one day." Like, where everybody that somebody walks up to, I'm dating the guy in Poison. You know, <laughs> Witch was cool because they were like even like a more metal Motley Crue kind of. Yeah, yeah. Funky Peru and Ronnie too, and. Yeah. Oh, man, those are good times. Yeah. <laughs> so when we're talking about these bands that didn't reach the level of a Poison or an Ellie Guns or a Fast and oh, Cat. I, I don't want to interrupt you. I'm so sorry. Please go but ahead. We, we have to bring up Barbie. Okay. Yes. Okay. They did abortions on stage. Oh, well, that they yeah. and, oh, and would yeah. throw and would throw. They, yes, they would collect these little, you know, what they'd had like what looked like a, a, a fetus, they would collect these and then throw them out to the audience and stuff. And, uh, but so Barbie, uh, Mattel or something sued them and they, they, they settled for like 150 grand or something. So they well, just stop. We get that 11 grand. <laughs> oh my God. 11. So Mattel paid Jim Torgerson 11 grand to stop using the name. And they bought, a series of BAM ads, remember? Jim Torgerson is in some kind of an office now, like a like a commissioner or something, like county commissioner, something like that. Yeah, something like political. Can you imagine? There was another band in the LA scene who got sued. They were a band called New Improved God, and they their logo. It's a great name. It was a great name, and I guess sort of as a kind of commentary on corporate culture or whatever the logo for new improved god was mickey mouse crucified on a cross oh i've seen that disney wasn't <laughs> wasn't so happy about that uh they weren't gonna get signed to hollywood records with that kind of so yeah D disney did sue them i don't know what came of that but you know it was on all the flyers i had for new improved god you know absolutely but what i what i was gonna ask you guys was so you know we're talking about some of the bands that i mentioned that either Never got signed. I don't think Damn Yankees, the other Damn Yankees, the not super group Damn Yankees, I don't think they got signed. I think there might have been some sniffing around. There were a lot of bands that did get signed. 
And they ended up in what they call in the business, like the cutout bin, you know, I let actually love rock city angels would be, I have that record. Cause I bought it for like a dollar at record surplus. Uh, you know, not all the, you know, of course, in any scene, not every band's going to make it, even if they work hard, even if they have great music, but do you guys have any insight into like, what was it that made you guys and some of your peers, like, what was it that made you successful while other bands weren't? I think, you know, because we come from a time, well, I mean, really, rock music or any live music situation is entertainment, right? So you can be great at the music part, but not very entertaining, you know, or your shtick just isn't cutting it, you know, kind of thing. But I mean, if you look at LA Guns and Poison in particular, you know, we're very identifiable, very unique in our own way, and very good at that, you know, Poison's the best Poison. L.A. Guns is the best L.A. Guns, you know. It's the only way you can really look at it because we weren't competitive with, with each other. And obviously, I mean, Ricky and I are still friends like a million years later. Um, you know, we, we, we were still able to kind of keep in our own lane, everybody, um, without it all mushing together, which it eventually did, you know. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when everything mushes together and everybody starts being the same, then that, that scene's over. <laughs> you know, it's pretty simple. How much do you think image was important to it? Because um, unfortunately with some bands, you know, the image did, especially when MTV, Dial MTV, Headbangers Ball, all that started, kind of overshadowed things. And in some cases, like I look at a band like um, Chips Enough or Enough's Enough, who were basically a power pop band, or Nelson, who were descended from Ricky Nelson and had a lot of folky harmonies, Everly Brothers influences, kind of Laurel Canyon influences. But because of the image, they weren't taken seriously. And I think that probably happened for a lot of bands in the 80s. How much was image a double-edged sword for these bands, including yourselves? It worked out for us in Poison, but I mean, I don't know. You know, image is very important because that's your that's the personality of your of what people see, you know. So um it's especially for bands like us at that time yeah i mean you know you you had to be something you know you had to you know you had to be first in a way because everything we did is regurgitated right so we were all the first uh, like a new era of this kind of imagery and music you know next level glam rock or whatever i love being called hair metal that's my favorite (laughs) <laughs> yeah nobody said that back then you know there were, i did i had no idea what the heck that was i mean that was that was invented to bash bands like ours that was what that was invented to do that's why finally i kind of uh adopted it and said you know i'm gonna own that back i'm buying that back so you know yeah but we're pretty successful so it's like it's like yeah hair metal yeah whatever cool Woo. yeah yeah right right Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, look, like even uh, artists like Bruce Springsteen, who supposedly has no image, has a very strong image. <laughs> I mean, at the moment, as we're taping, at literally on the day we're taping this, there's uh, an exhibit at the Grammy Museum of like all his outfits. It's the entire top floor of the Grammy Museum is his T-shirts and jeans. So, right. 
Yeah, but that was that was his thing. I mean, just, I mean, James Dean, a white T-shirt and jeans. I mean that, and rolled up rolled up pants and you know the engineer boots. I mean, it looks like it's no image, but it's a huge image. You know what I'm saying? Same with um the grunge. Th- I mean, another term that the bands never embraced themselves. No band that was called grunge ever called themselves grunge or embraced that term. But you know, there's this idea that I think is not true. There, there's some revisionist history. That when bands, obviously Nirvana being the one they cite the most as being like the game-changing band, came in looking in t-shirts and jeans and not looking like the the bands that were on MTV in the 80s, that it just wiped the slate clean and like every single one of the bands that was on Headbangers Ball and Dial MTV in 1989 like went away overnight. That did not happen. If you were there, that did not happen. happen. Guns N' Roses and Poison were playing on the same VMAs. Like that did not happen. Yes, of course, they're like with any decade uh, change, like things change. That did not happen overnight. But I always, as much as I loved bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana, I missed the excitement of the 80s, whether it was whatever you want to call them, the glam metal bands or the death rock bands or the new wave bands or the pop bands for them or the Madonna and the Cyndi Lauper's of the world who, you know, had a flashy aesthetic. I missed that when that went away. You know, you're right. It didn't just disappear. Like like Native Tongue, you know, quietly in the first year sold a million copies. You know, like we were not done. We were lucky for a long time. It's just when CC couldn't continue and he left the band, that was that was what really stalled us for a while, particularly. You know, David Lee Roth once said <laughs> brilliantly, you know, rock and roll's always been about haircuts and shoes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I just want to say in like 1992, Guns N' Roses and Nirvana and Poison, they were all in the mix together still. Yes, in some ways. Um, you know, they they wanted, you know, Nirvana fans wanted to annihilate Poison Weirs and Van Halen. They'd sold Van Halen as a dinosaurs or whatever. But, you know, I think every great musical movement has been sort of a cultural social movement like punk rock was extremely social and and what we were doing was a social cultural movement i mean you really had to commit to to be into what we were doing i mean people would get thrown out of school and get in fights with their parents and we're not going to take it and i mean all that stuff i mean it was really uh, it, it really set America and the and the world on fire in a lot of ways. And then I think that grunge had a social cultural movement. I think Marilyn Manson had a social cultural movement. Now I don't think rock has any social cultural movement, and that's the problem. And it's nobody stands for anything right now. Uh, actually, Taylor Swift has more bravery than most rock bands these days not afraid to open her mouth and go against the man rock bands play the game now man they're like you know so i i think that for rock to really come back on top it has to have something behind it it's just like any great art if you know you can't just do art just to do art i mean it's if there's something behind it that's what really makes it great and uh i i would love for I would. Lo- I always say in my all my videos, you know, take care of each other, keep rock alive. I'm trying desperately to keep rock alive. I want to see it more than anything in the world. It's it's so important. But when people sometimes, in retrospect, somebody will say, "Oh, somebody Jeff Beck 
you know, I, I remember the headline, uh, I think it was in New York Post or whatever, from from the rock era, like it's gone, you know, yeah. in, in journalists' mind, you know, it, it's uh, very frustrating. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. One thing I want to ask you, I've always wanted to ask a member of Poison Surgery. So we're talking about the aesthetic, and you're also talking about the fact that back then, you know, there was standing for something and there, it was rebellious. I don't know if people remember that when the Look What the Cat Dragged In album cover came out with a very specific, like, glamour mall shot, like, glamour shots aesthetic to those four pictures, that was very daring at the time. People were a bit up in arms. It was a very striking image of the four of you, very glammed up, lots of makeup. My parents commented on it, absolutely. Yeah, so let me talk about that for a second. So... Athena did our makeup for that album cover. Oh, Tommy's sister. Okay. I never knew so that. You can blame Athena for that album. Cover. I don't blame her. I thank her. So uh <laughs> Cece had a breakout, like literally that day. Like he had a reaction. He had this horrible breakout. We kept slapping makeup on him. Like, I'm not kidding. We wore makeup, no question. But we were like putting like tons and it wasn't working. It was peeling. Like so they kind of restarted it. I remember this day. So when we were done with the shoot, Enigma couldn't pay to have us do another photo shoot. So they hired an airbrush artist. Now, at the time, there was no Photoshop. They literally airbrushed it. So if you airbrush one guy, you got to airbrush all the guys or, or it won't work <laughs> together. By the time they were done, we looked like porcelain dolls. You know what I mean? And we're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You remember like the Merle Norman like makeover before and after at the mall ads? You look like that in a good way. I just want to point out that I was down with this look, but maybe it wasn't. We look like we look like a a, like an artist, like the cover of Rio. Who was that? uh, That artist, Patrick Nagel. You look like Nagel. We look like Nagel, right? Yeah. So we just rolled with it. We're like, wow, this is so impactful. Like uh, Enigma just went, I remember us all arguing, saying, no, we got to redo it. This isn't getting across what we want to get across. It was closer than we wanted it. We wanted it a little further away. We wanted rips instead of like these lines, you know. Uh, I just remember all this stuff. I have the original piece, right? Oh, my God. That belongs in the Smithsonian or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I loved it because it was very bold at the time. I was like, this is kind of punk rock like these. And the re- the question I want to ask, I think probably the answer is no. Maybe I overthink things. I always thought that the album was called Look What the Cat Dragged In as a sort of cheeky reference to the fact that it was almost look you almost look like drag queens on the cover. I had the album and my dad looked at it. He's like, look what the cat dragged in. Huh? Yeah, they look like drag queens. And I was like, shut up, dad. Originally, it was drug in, and then people thought that the Enigma thought that the drug reference wouldn't be good. So, you know, and I've heard both. So, For what it's worth, I have been campaigning for this for so long. 
a few years ago, I interviewed Rob Halford, and he told me that he was a big uh, RuPaul's Drag Race fan, and that he wanted to be a judge, a guest judge on RuPaul's Drag Race. And RuPaul's Drag Race has done musical challenge. They did a punk rock challenge where Chris Stein and Debbie Harry were the judges. They did a new wave challenge where the B-52s were judges. They did a hip hop challenge where a few different rappers. And I'm like, why have they not done a metal challenge? Get people from Poison, get D. Snyder, get someone from Kiss. Get, get Rob Halford, get people who wore makeup in the day and get these drag queens full on doing a metal challenge where they do a metal song. Like, I feel this would be the highest rated episode in Drag Race history. And I feel like someone from Look What the Cat Dragged In needs to be a part of it. I'm just putting that out there. If anyone from RuPaul's Drag Race is listening, I've been campaigning for Rob Halford to be a part of this. Someone on, on Drag Race last season wore very obviously Ace Freely inspired drag makeup and say like kiss was their favorite band and rupaul said that he loves kiss so let's make this happen let's bring back let's have a rock and roll drag race i'm just putting it out there you don't have to say yes now what what's crazy is that i think that even though so many people in our era wore makeup back then the, the older i get the more i need it right but it's amazing how many rock people are homophobic it's an incredibly homophobic genre that's uh, weird yeah very weird and, and yet you were although you know uh, to my knowledge the majority of the bands in the sunset strip scene were were straight guys who were getting lots of chicks you were definitely experimenting with gender with the way you wore your hair and makeup the clothes the shoes the heeled boots all of it that was something that attracted me to poison to la guns to your peers to specimen to bring it back to them like uh, to and to bowie and to Duran Duran. I mean, if you go back historically, I mean, in different centuries, some, you know, sometimes guys would wear some of the more extravagant outfits and things like that, even more than the women a lot of time. The women stayed up there pretty well, too. But I mean, God, if you were a knight, I mean, it was your stuff was polished and your hair was this. And I mean, you know what I mean? Like it was people where you were a dandy, as the English say, you know what I mean? And, yeah. Uh, and I think it's interesting that a scene that, as you mentioned, fortunately has some homophobia in it is also a scene that's rooted in experimenting with being basically being peacocks, you know, the, you know, yeah. uh, rock and roll peacocks. It's, it's a weird contradiction to me. I have no idea if you have any thoughts on why that would even be the case. Well, it's it's part of why rock's struggling, I think, right now. Yeah, right. You know, there is a contradiction of all these things. What are some misconceptions about this era of music, this Sunset Strip classic era that, you know, we haven't already addressed that you'd like to take a moment to clear up or talk about? I'll go and then I'll let Tracy finish it. Oh, go ahead, Tracy. I'm sorry. I'm a big mouth. It's, it's okay. I mean, I don't think there's any misconceptions. You know, I think that, you know, when you put yourself out there, like we have, image-wise, you know, that's where we're going. It's open to interpretation, you know, because it's not black and white. I'm just looking at any of our bands, like what is going on? You know, we think it's black and white. But to like, you know, like we were talking about, you know, people that are, you know, slightly racist or misogynist like that. Yeah, they look at us and it's just, they feel threatened, you know, they always have. But they end up buying your record anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and Ricky, what did you what did you want to say about that? 
One of the biggest misconceptions, I think, with, at least with us, which I've never really liked, is we people say, oh, spandex and hairspray. Okay, granted, I definitely used hairspray. Spandex, not so much. Um, it, it, in fact, it's hard to find pictures of me in that. Okay, We were kind of past that. I remember scorpions wearing a lot of spandex. Um really wasn't that shiny spandexy thing with bandanas wrapped around our legs. I didn't really do that thing okay. too much. I th- I'd like to say I did better than that. Okay. <laughs> and then the other thing I want to just bring up, because very much at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about GIT, Musicians Institute, Guitar Institute, is all of these bands or, you know, most of them are the ones that, or the ones at least that did very well. Like whether people like this kind of music or not, these people could really play. I it's very weird to me. We talk about grunge and punk and stuff. And when that started to come in, it became kind of like hip to not be able to play well. And you know, I I like a scrappy band as well. And I like a scrap, I think I've made it very clear. I like a scrappy aesthetic. Hold on, hold on. That's a stupid excuse. You know, when people say it's it's cool to not be able to play well, that's just bullshit. That's that's just like a cop-out. That every musician wants to be great at playing their instrument. So when you hear people say that, oh yeah, you know, blah, 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 you know, that kind of like holier than thou, you know, insecurity because they can't play. You know what I mean? But yes, every guitarist should have their own personality. The guitar is a very emotional place to express yourself. So, you know, if you want to bash people that are really good at it and get a lot of praise, that's just that's insecurity, man. Everybody wants to play their instrument well. It makes no sense to me because in the sense that's interesting, or in the metal scene in general, metal in the metal genre in general, for the most part, it's considered, it's very valued to be virtuosic at your instrument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say, I, I think where some of that comes from, I think that a lot of times people think that if they put a bunch of all-stars together, like really good players that they're going to get really good music. And, and that's not necessarily how that goes because what it is, if you put yourself before the song, then you're setting yourself up for songs that aren't that great. You know what I mean? Lots of times. Now there are exceptions. You have Saga that came out, Toto, you know, some of these really great players, right? Uh, That were able to get into the, you know, top 40 by just, and they could, studio guys, right? But they listened to themselves play back all the time and they played for other people a lot. So they understood it. I mean, Jeff Picaro played on the Lido Shuffle and all these things, you know. So, I mean, these were people who really understood songs and song crafting. Mm-hmm. The same thing can happen. I mean, if you listen to Imagine Dragons, for example, it's very simplistic drums. I mean, don't, bah, don't, bah. I mean, you can march to it, right? Honestly, when you put the music, the song first, and then let everything else fall into place, I think, I think you you get, and you don't always have to be a virtuoso to do that. That's right. And I think that's where that comes from. But I think Tracy's absolutely right. What I like, you know, to be able to play is as good as uh, Portnoy. I love Mike Portnoy. You know, we're friends, but I can't do what Mike does. I don't. But I think he might overplay on a Poison song and mess it up somehow. I don't know. I don't know. Everybody does their thing. Yeah. But you have to be proficient. You can't, 
you can't suck and do this for for very long. I mean, you can. You have to be proficient enough to. I mean, you know, we always have this image of Johnny Thunders falling over or whatever. The guy could play. He could. Yeah, he could. Uh, was he great? Uh, but he took this this mistakes and uh, like honed them so well that it became something else. And there's there's something cool about that too. Steve yes, Jones. Steve Jones could play. You know, I mean, absolutely could oh, play. Yeah. So, and he's from you know the the Pistols, and people would be like, oh, they could barely play their instruments. Not true of Steve Jones, at least. So obviously, you guys have been doing this for a long time, and and you know still killing it so you know we're, we've talked a lot about the state of rock today uh what are you guys up to now and sort of to keep this flag flying for rock and roll i know obviously poison did this stadium tour which was with motley Crue and joan jet and uh def leppard and it was massive which shows there's still an appetite obviously for this kind of music so what are you guys up to now well like guns has a new record awesome yeah we put out a record like almost every year now you know go tour and People love it. We love it. So, like, I don't see the issues, you know, like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's so cool that you're back doing L.A. Guns. I mean, it's like it's and the, ba- the band looks great, sounds great. You know, I mean, it's it's a cool lineup. I hope you keep the lineup. It is. It's the best lineup. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really good. Yeah. We played with Poison this summer, last summer. That was great. You know, that was cool. We hadn't done that in a long time, Rick. I know it was so cool. And what are you up to, Ricky, with Poison or elsewhere? Well, Poison's not going to work this year, but I'm doing, you know, I'm doing a drum clinic. I'm doing a rock and roll fantasy camp. I have my YouTube channel, The Poison Drummer. I've been doing that. And, you know, this summer, I'm going to spend an awful lot of time with my kids and doing, uh, you know, content creation. I do have a TV show in the works. It's a paranormal show. So we'll see what happens with that, because that's something I'm super into. But I don't like to jinx things. You know, I have a book coming out. That'll probably be in about a year, you know, it takes forever for this stuff to come out, but we're about a quarter of the way through that. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's the same people who did the Matt Sorum book. Awesome. Doing, helping me do mine. Yeah. I can't read, wait to read all the stories in that. In the meantime, I've been really enjoyed all the stories I've heard from you guys today. It's been a lot of fun going down memory lane to the Sunset Strip. So a special thanks to Ricky Rocket and Tracy Guns, and thanks to everyone out there listening. Remember to give Totally 80s some love with a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s, And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side.